All right, if you would, turn in the Bible to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. Increasingly, Revelation is getting more and more interesting or difficult to understand. We are now to the seventh seal. We studied the first six seals in chapter 6, but at the end of chapter 6, we were asked a question, who can stand in the judgment when Christ returns? So chapter 7 gave us a little interlude of that beautiful answer. The redeemed can make it through the judgment. That's the answer. And then chapter 8, where we're at today, seven trumpets. And I'll try to explain that today. Revelation chapter 8, we're going to study the first five verses. But before we do, I want to remind you of that most fascinating Bible character, John the Baptist. You know him. You've heard of him, at least I think you have. He was the one that God sent right before Jesus. John the Baptist is a fascinating character because the Bible says that he had been out living in the wilderness for a long time. And so when he came on the scene, he was wearing camel fur, and he had long hair and a beard, and he ate locusts and honey. He's meant to be seen as odd so that we would recognize him as special. But he was Jesus' cousin, and he came right before Jesus. So when you read in the Gospels, before you hear anything about Christ, you see John the Baptist. But there's not a lot in the Bible about John the Baptist, except that he's the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophet, this prophetic voice saying, you better get ready. Prepare the way. The Lord is coming. And I remember over the years, spending evening after evening in our home, on the floor, reading kids' Bibles time and time again. We'd read through a kid's Bible, then we'd get a new kid's Bible, and we'd read through a kid's Bible, and read, then we'd get a new kid's Bible, and we would go through all these different ones, night after night. And while they do cover many of the stories in the Bible, often the most interesting story of all is John the Baptist. The kids know about John the Baptist because of the way he looked, especially when a kid's Bible has a picture of him. But what's great about John the Baptist is there aren't a lot of things he said. You know that he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that, pointing at Christ as he arrives, as he's there baptizing people. We know that John the Baptist also is the one who said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Think about that. He's coming after me in time, but he's actually before me. And because he is so great, he ranks way higher than me. To clarify that, he says, I am not worthy to undo the straps of his sandals. John the Baptist declares his unworthiness in light of the worthiness of Jesus, the lamb slain for the sins of the world. But John the Baptist's main message is that I'm here to point you to the coming Savior. And for that reason, as a small little catechism that we used in our home, 
I would ask, and our kids could still tell you this to this day, I would say, what was John the Baptist's message? And the answer is that I wanted them to say is, you better get ready. Jesus is coming. Church, here today, that may be an old-fashioned message, but it is truly the message of God for all ages. It's what the Bible warns of. It's what the Bible points to. It's how the Bible comforts people. You better be ready. Jesus is coming. It's true. You know, the world or, or people out there like to say that we're, you know, old-fashioned or stuck in our old ways or traditional or all of that. And if we are wrongly because we're into things that we shouldn't be into or we're holding on to things that we shouldn't hold on to, well, yeah, shame on us. But if that label comes because we continue to believe the Bible pointing us to our Savior Christ, we'll take any label like that. Call us whatever you want. May we be ready, expectant, looking, longing for the return of Christ. At Revelation chapter eight, we see the Bible emphasizing this. You better be ready. Jesus is coming. Read with me at Revelation 8, the first five verses. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And in the very next passage, we will begin to study the seven trumpets. The seven seals, remember, I want to remind you, the seven seals were on that scroll that God has in his hand on the throne, okay? You should be remembering that. If you haven't listened to all these revelation messages, I know it might be long and boring, but go back and listen to those. You gotta keep up with this story. You gotta keep up with what's going on in the book of Revelation. God is on the throne, and he's holding a scroll, and that scroll is sealed up by seven seals. And we see the lamb, Jesus, going and approaching the throne as the only one in heaven, on earth, and under the earth worthy to do that. No one was found worthy, we are told, except the lamb. And so the lamb is there to open the seals. And in chapter six, we read these six seals being opened, and they're clearly judgments. They are pictures of what's going on in the world. And the first four were the four horsemen. And then the fifth was the martyrs. And the sixth was the, the, the judgment of the world, the return of Christ. We saw that in chapter six. 
But that chapter six ended with the big question, who can stand before the judgment of God? Because everybody's running and trying to hide and they're, they're trying to find ways to end their lives so they do not face God's judgment. That's how chapter six ends. It's a rather terrifying passage, very graphic. They're asking the mountains and the caves to collapse on them so that they do not face God. And what would seem to be immediately after that in, in the seventh seal would be the return of Christ and the salvation. But instead, chapter 7 tells us of who can actually stand. And chapter 7 is a beautiful chapter that we spent three Sundays on. The last three Sundays are for chapter 7. And they are that worship before the throne. They are the 144,000. They are the number that nobody could count, the multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, worshiping God saying, worthy are you, worthy are you, God, for our salvation. Chapter seven answers the huge question, who can actually be saved? Who can escape the judgment? What's the answer to life? What's the answer to sin? Chapter seven tells us that. And then we get to chapter eight, where we are today, and it picks back up with the seals. It's the seventh seal. The seventh seal, though, immediately just flows right into the seven trumpets. And I'm not going to talk much about the trumpets today because that's what's coming after this. So we look at our passage and we see that it is yet again the Lamb who opens the seventh seal. Remember, Jesus is the only one that could approach the throne. He's the only one worthy, and so he's the only one worthy to open the seals. And so he opens the seventh. And we see here silence in heaven for about half an hour. I have three points today, and my first one is silence in heaven. For you kids using a listening page, that's it, silence in heaven. This is an incredible statement. This is a wild scene. Wild in that it's caught our attention, not wild in what's going on. It's not crazy there. Everything has stopped. Silence in heaven. In a really odd number, 30 minutes, half an hour. That's a small period of time on the grand scheme of things. There is silence in heaven. Now remember, Revelation has already told us multiple times there is worship of God there. They never cease to say night and day, holy, holy, holy. The redeemed are gathered around the throne crying out to him, worthy are you, our God, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. One clear observation of heaven around the throne is that God is worshiped there, and we love that aspect of it. God deserves his worship, and Revelation tells us that heaven does have God being worshiped. One thing that is not very apparent in the book of Revelation about heaven is silence or moments of silence. But here, at this seventh seal, there is. This silence is intentionally to get their attention and our attention that the great event 
of the coming of Christ is at hand. This pause, this stillness, this stoppage, this silence in heaven is that great event to get their attention and our attention that the return of Christ is at hand. Silence is a most proper action before the return of Jesus. And silence throughout the Bible is what we see before God's judgment. Listen to these verses, Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Zephaniah 1.7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord. Be silent before him. Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. There are others too. These are just three. Three messages from three different prophets about we should be silent before God, before his judgment, before his judgment that is coming, because his judgment is near. This is the proper response. Picture a third grade classroom in an elementary school when the class is being loud and the kids are up and acting out. It's just so noisy in that classroom. And all of a sudden, walking down the hallway, you can hear those fine dress shoes stepping down the hallway. And the teacher recognizes the principal is on the way to check out the class. And so the teacher says quickly, yo, be quiet, the teacher's, the, the principal's coming. And just like that, they go quiet because they know he's coming. This is the scene that Revelation gives us. We've already seen the four horsemen bring crazy wild judgments on earth. We've already seen the martyrs, those killed for the cause of God, crying out in their martyrdom, how long, O God, desiring Christ to return. And the message there was wait a little bit. We've already seen in the sixth this crazy scene of the return of God in judgment to judge the world, to judge everybody, to judge the kings and the nations and the great and the powerful, to judge the world. We've seen that. And right after that, there is silence because Christ is coming. The Bible wants you and I to hold in great earnestness and sincerity and seriousness that the God that made you, you are accountable to, and you need to know that he will come back to judge one day. Now, that is not the driving factor for you to love him, and that is not the driving factor for you to obey him. It isn't. And matter of fact, that type of fear-driven religion or parenting does not ultimately work. The driving factor is that that God that judges has sent his son to already face his judgment on your behalf. The judgment that is coming isn't the first judgment. 
There's already been a judgment on the sins of the world in the Son of God on the cross. Christ died for our sins. Christ was punished, betrayed. Christ was beaten, slain, crucified, dealt with. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ in judgment for us. So when the judgment comes from God at the end of the world, it is not the driving factor to turn people to love him. It is the judgment coming for those who have not trusted in his love for them when he has sent his Christ to die, his son. Nevertheless, it is the judgment of God. It is the end of the world. And so it is right that there would be a pause. It puts it into perspective. Commentator Easley says, this silence in heaven surely mesmerized John. The living creatures, the elders, all the angels who had been without ceasing praising God from the beginning of their creation, now they fall silent, perhaps for the first time. Something major is about to happen. This is the eerie calm before the storms of judgment blow. Schreiner, commentating in a different way about it, says, this is the kind of eerie silence we feel in the natural world before a tornado suddenly strikes. Verse one of chapter eight, at the seventh seal, tells us there is silence in heaven. Folks, I want to challenge you today that your heart, that your life, that your focus would slow down enough to consider, are you ready for that? May we not be so busy. May we not be so hurried. May we not be so uncomfortable with who we are that we stay so busy that we never face it. You and I both know that that's a very real part of life these days. Issues with ourselves that if we just keep being busy, we'll never have to face. And may we recognize from the silence in heaven that this coming of Christ is such a big deal, that the judgment of God is such a real thing, that we have been warned time and time again that we would be ready for it. May you take time to consider where your heart is, to consider if you love him, to truly assess if you've asked him for forgiveness and to cast all your hope on him. May the silence in heaven teach us to get silent before him as a way of depending upon him as our savior. But the scene quickly moves from the silence to the prayers of the saints. That's my second point. 
Number one, silence in heaven. Number two, the prayers of the saints. Verse two says, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So like I said, immediately the book of Revelation says the seventh seal leads way, gives way to the seven trumpets. So now we have these seven angels holding seven trumpets. Verse three, and then another angel, so not the seven, another angel, like an eighth angel, came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. A censer is something that just kind of holds the, holds the incense. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of all the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now this, we got to spend some time on. In the judgment, at the end, the return of Christ, a huge character, a key piece of this story is our prayers. Don't miss this. This is our livelihood. This is who we are. We live by faith. We pray without ceasing. We talk to our Father in heaven. We cry out to him. And here in the judgment scene, a key part of the story is the prayers of all of God's children. You are in this as a praying person. But it's not the first time that we've seen prayers before the throne at the altar. If you turn back to chapter six, I've already mentioned this, but let's get it together. Chapter six, verse nine is the fifth seal. Look at this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Just an impressive group. People who had been killed, martyred for faith, for faith in God. That's a real category out there. You and I may not know somebody personally that has been their life has been taken for the cause of Christ, but it's real. It's very real. There's a lot of that that goes on in the world. And they are the fifth seal. They are a special people. Verse 10 says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We see a prayer at the altar. Notice verse nine says, under the altar, okay? We see a prayer at the altar of them crying out, how long, God, until you judge? How long? How long? And they are told, they are to, verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Not yet, so this fifth seal in chapter six, nine through 11 is a picture in the judgments coming upon the world of the martyrs crying out in prayer, how long, God? But then at chapter eight, where we're at today, we see here at the altar again, so same place, all of the saints' prayers. Now the prayers of all the saints are added to the cries of the martyrs at this golden altar before the throne of God. 
The prayers are there. The prayers of all the redeemed. The prayers of all the church. The prayers of every praying person are Wednesday night prayer meetings. Your grandma up early in the mornings praying for her children and grandchildren. The prayers that happen from all the churches. The prayers that happen on our knees by our bedside. The prayers of all the people of God crying out to God for him to do what he does. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is the absolute baseline heart of everybody saved of their sins that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6. Pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for lots of things in our lives. We pray for it to rain, and we pray for it to not rain. We pray to get the job, and we pray to get some more money. We pray for our food. God bless the food. We pray for all sorts of things. But at the very center of all of our prayers is a deep desire out of our salvation for God to be glorified, for his name to be holy and exalted, and for his will to be done in the earth. That is the heart of a child of God. And what you see in Revelation 8 at the seventh seal or the seven trumpets or whatever's going on here, we see the, the cries of the martyrs linked up with every prayer of all the saints going up before God. It is fascinating that this passage is showing us that at the end of the world and the judgment of God and the return of Christ, it is the prayers of all God's children that seem to be inaugurating it, initiating it, bringing it about. That when God returns on the earth to bring salvation to all those who believe and bring judgment to all those who don't, it is the cry of God's children that is present there. What a thought. I want to ask you here today, is your heart there? Does the model prayer of our Father who art in heaven, which you, so many of us have memorized, has it become a part of your faith? Is that your cry? Is that who you are deep down? Do you want God's kingdom to come? Do you want evil to be done away with? Do you want his will to be done that's the heart of the child of God. He saved us to have that heart. He made us into people that have that heart. And here we have the prayers. It seems that the prayer of how long in chapter 6, which was answered wait a little longer, is now being answered a little differently. At the fifth seal, it was wait just a little longer. But at the seventh seal, it's now. The blast of the trumpets is coming. The judgment is near. The judgment is coming. And it is the prayers of the saints. I want to ask you about your prayer life. And I know that we pray for the immediate I read a book recently, a real simple practical book on 21 days to a childlike prayer. It's a good book. And he gives a simple little uh, 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 a guide for how to shape your prayers. Write this down, you'll like this. He says you need to learn to pray the Bible, learn to pr pray your problems, and learn to pl pray your plans. It's a little bit of a tongue twister there, sorry about that. Pray your Bible, Pray your problems, pray your plans. I like that. I want to ask you, first of all, do you pray? But beyond that, I want to ask you if you pray for big picture things. 
God, do away with evil. God, make it right. God, come fix it all. God, rescue them. One of the things that happens in the Christian life is we kind of get this narrow vision of thinking about the world only through our experience. This is a big problem for Christian people. We're trying to understand everything that's going on all over the place only through our experience. It just it doesn't really work that way. When we pray for us to hit a game-winning shot or win the ball game or and we pray for us to find the right girlfriend or and you're driving to the car dealership and that's the truck you really want and you're praying that you get it. Because this is how we pray. I mean, me, not y'all, me too. That's okay. We can pray about everything. But we've also got to be able to pray for God to stop evil. We've got to be able to pray for God to bring revival. We've got to be able to pray for God to change courses. You be able to pray big things. This week I got a call to do a funeral and I did it on Friday. It was a 50 year old lady that died. She was born without eyes and severely handicapped. She never talked, she hardly walked. She spent almost her whole life on the floor. When she was born, because of the way she was, severely handicapped, no eyes, never talked, her parents didn't want her, so they immediately abandoned her. So she was taken over by a guardian. That, over time, only took her because of the amount of money that came along with her from the state. She was severely abused, kept in the closet, locked up for the majority of her life until somehow a caregiver figured it out. They went to court, and the only way that they could get a new guardian was if there's somebody who now this lady's about 30 years old would be willing to take her in. Abused, beaten, no eyes, can't speak, basically lives on the floor. Anybody want to adopt her for 24-7? That was about 20 years ago. And a man with a heart of gold said he'd take her. He was a CPA, and so he could afford it. And he adopted this girl, this lady, got guardianship of her, and immediately put her in the finest care that he could possibly find. In the last 20 years of her life, she's been loved, supported, cared for. I was brought to tears at the funeral as I heard caregiver after caregiver speak about what a blessing this woman was. She loved to hear the piano played. She would sit as a 50-year-old woman at the foot of the piano moving to the music. 
She would feel the vibrations of the piano and just smile, never spoke a word. They said she loved to have her hair brushed. I heard a caregiver say, this, we learned that this woman knew how to feel love. What a perspective. What a perspective. And until you've been in it, around it, dealt with it, hurt from it, sacrificed into it, you have no idea that that sort of stuff's going on. And what do you do about it? But as I prepared for that funeral, and as I preached that funeral, I was reminded this lady longs for the return of Christ. This lady wants heaven. I hear people say, well, I hope he doesn't return yet because I've, I want to be able to do this. North Carolina's got a good chance this year coming up. Man, I really want to see that happen. I want to have grandkids one day. And my perspective makes me think for a ridiculous perspective to say, heaven can wait. Y'all, there's a world full of people that have no looking up. Life has beat them down. I was reminded at this funeral, and I hope you know this, we're not all dealt the same hand. It's so easy to say, everybody's dealt the same hand, and it's whatever you make of it. My life has been wonderful. I got parents who've put me on the right path time and time again. And every single time that I ran off the path and ended up in the wrong direction, they lovingly helped me get right back on it. And they'll do it even still to this day. I've been dealt a pretty good hand. But I met a lady, deceased, on Friday, whose parents abandoned her and her guardian abused her. Her life was so extremely tough. And I was reminded on Friday, there are people out there who can't wait to get to heaven. This is to be the heart of the child of God. Do you remember at the end of the Bible, which we're not there yet, how often we hear, Lord Jesus, come. He's coming soon. Lord Jesus, come. And don't you remember that even in some of the New Testament letters, we hear Paul say, Lord, come. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. It is the heart of the child of God that for as pleasurable as this life is, or as miserable as this life is, whatever life you've got, our heart is for heaven. God, end the suffering, end the evil, end the injustice, make it right. Come do it. This is the prayer. These are the prayers of the saints that we see at the seventh seal 
and the start of the trumpets that we see in the judgment, that all of the prayers, the prayers from Africa and the prayers from Asia and the prayers from the United States and the prayers from South America and the prayers from everybody that hopes in God, crying out to God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Easily says, once more we see that what the saints do on earth has a direct effect in the very presence of God. In this final scene, the judgment or the the return of Christ, we have the prayers, the everyday prayers in that scene. It doesn't tell us which prayers, it just says the prayers. The mom or dad that wakes up 30 minutes before the kids to sit at the table in peace and drink that coffee and say, God, we cry out to you this morning. The prayers at the funeral home as Fairdale lost a sweet lady this week. We knew her and the funeral home was packed. Their parking lot was full, our parking lot was full. And beautiful, classic, small-town glory, shack in the back closed for the day for the funeral. That was awesome. She was a former employee at shack in the back. But the prayers that happen in moments like that, the prayers when you are thrown to heartache and so you cry out to God, the prayers of the saints are a key part of the final seal being opened, which is the judgment of God and the return of Christ and the salvation. So I ask you again about your prayers. May they not just be about you. May they be for the glory of God and the coming of Christ and for his will to be done. The prayers of the saints are here in the end scene. But lastly, number three, We see the purpose of God's judgments. There's silence in heaven and there's the prayers of the saints. And finally, there's the purpose of the judgments. Look at verse five. You've got all these prayers, you've got smoke, you've got incense, you've got all this before the altar. And verse four says, they rose before God from the hand of the angel. Kind of an awesome scene, right? that the the prayers are going up from the altar, like rising to God's attention, rising to his nostrils, rising to his ears, uh, getting God's attention, the prayers are. And verse five says, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. Obviously, this is a dramatic scene. And threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And throughout the Bible, I mean, this is really common, throughout the Bible, all of those descriptive things are present in God's judgments. And what we will study over the next couple weeks are what those judgments are and what those judgments are like and how they are the playing out of history from the time of Christ until the end and how they are the end times and the return of Christ and the judgment of the world. Yes, the Bible speaks of a judgment. And yes, God is a judge. 
but he's a good judge and a right judge and a true judge. And thank God for those who judge rightly. And God is the ultimate example and picture of that. We read earlier from Matthew chapter 24 about the return of Christ. And in that passage, it says that Jesus' return will be like the days of Noah, which you know is a very scary story. I hope your children's stories and kids' Bibles have not caused you to think that the story of Noah is cute. Because the story of Noah, as told by Christ in Matthew 24, was they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were living their lives until the day Noah got on the ark and they were swept away. And the judgment of God will come in the same way. You will be living your life and then the judgment will be here. But like John the Baptist said, he's coming, you better be ready. And Revelation is reminding us that week after week that Christ is coming, you better be ready. But as I said at the beginning, the judgment that is coming from God on high in all of its majesty doesn't just go from chapter six to chapter eight. God in his mercy, as he is so often merciful and gracious, goes from the sixth seal to the seventh seal with a, a 17-verse interlude answering the question, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And you know who can? All of those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Because at chapter six, they ask the question, who are these people? And John says, I don't know, but you do. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So for as dramatic and intense and fearful as the judgment sounds, it is wonderful to those who know Christ. This is God's message throughout. Schreiner writes, God judges those who stubbornly resist his will and their failure to repent of their sins demonstrates that they deserve judgment. Folks, may it not be the case for you That first song we sang has a line in it. And I I like that first song we sang today because it just, it it starts so fast. Tyson did a great job on the drum and we went from from Jake's opening prayer to rocking and rolling with that first song. But there's a line in that song that says, I had a head full of rocks and a heart full of stone. Have you heard that? That's a rather new lyric, but I like it. The heart full of stone is biblical. The Bible says that when you're lost, you're dead in your sins, you got a heart full of stone. You learn the heart of stone from the Bible and you learn head full of rocks from your parents. That's what it's like when you're hard-headed and you do only what you think. 
the Bible is teaching us, don't stay that way. Turn to Jesus. Believe. If you're here today and you've not secured your salvation by trusting in Christ, do it. Come let me know. Bow your head. Cry out to him. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Christ, the Savior, that's coming back to judge all those that don't believe and coming back to save those that do. Trust in Christ for your soul and for the forgiveness of sins so that when that day comes, you'll be ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this silent scene in heaven and the prayers and the judgment. Thank you, God, that the judgment is to make things right. It'll be good. Father, help us to have the faith that understands that perspective. Help us to see the worth of Christ that he died under your judgment for sin on our behalf for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Father, we pray that we would not listen to so many that try to tell us the judgment's not a real thing and that it's a fear-driven religion or way of life. And we would know better than that, that that's not true. This is love-driven. You love us. And because of your great love for us and the forgiveness of our sins through your Savior who died and rose again, we love you back. Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Oh, Father, if there are people here today who haven't fully trusted in Christ and turned from their sins, work in their hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.